My name is Dr. Anwar Osborne. And I'm Dr. Matthew Wheatley. And this is Pobscast. So welcome to Podcast. I'm joined as always with my colleague, partner, friend, Dr. Matthew Wheatley. How's it going? And uh, we're going to kind of change up the format some for today's show. We're going to do something more along the lines of a longer form story. And we want to we wanted to kind of go around and kind of get everybody's take on the two midnight rule and kind of overlay that with uh, a history of the two midnight rule since we've talked about it so much. And we got some old audio. We got some new audio by some big deal folks. So uh, I tried to explain it to Dr. Wheatley. I don't think it worked out. <laughs> I, I still showed up anyway. <laughs> So uh, this uh, this week, have you guys had big issues in OBS? How are things going? Um, I wouldn't say any big issues. I mean, it's mainly same stuff. I think we're we're normally dealing with. Um, I, I mean, I would say that the with regards to the two midnight rule, I would say that the acuity creep issue is it's a real thing. Right. Uh, there are plenty of patients with multiple active issues that you know, due to kind of chronically poorly managed disease. And there may be one sentinel issue that brought them into the hospital that day. Uh, but then as you do your workup, you find, well, you know, your hypertension and your diabetes aren't managed very well. And so those are all things that uh, the providers in the observation unit have to take into account as they're treating the patients. And, you know, some folks, it's easy. You can just start mm -hmm. them back on their medicine. Some folks, it's hard because they don't know their medicines or maybe you realize that they're being inappropriately managed. And that's something that really falls out of the wheelhouse of most emergency physicians. I mean, our national organization's position on things like asymptomatic blood pressure and asymptomatic hyperglycemia is to basically send them to their primary care physician. Well, if they don't have a primary care physician or, or have significant barriers from a social standpoint, getting in to see that person, then you as the emergency physician are stuck with, uh, I don't wanna say stuck with, you are tasked with mm -hmm. managing that condition. And right. uh, as Steve Pitts pointed out, you know, on our podcast a couple months ago, emergency physicians are really the new GPs right. in, in the American healthcare system. Right, yeah. Speaking of Steve Pitts, his last shift ever is, to, he's here, has he already had it? I'm not sure. Uh, maybe it is June 1st. Yeah. That is his official first day of retirement. So, you know, big shout out to him. He big is a uh, yeah. huge hero to all of us at Emory uh, in the emergency department right. and a uh, huge hero, I think, to many who do health services research. So right. I don't think he's going to stop doing the research. He said that, I think. No, yeah, no. So. Yeah, he was just up in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, seeing uh, Wolfpack. They played, they played two shows up there. He went up, <laughs> really? He went up with Byron, and uh, I think they have a brother. He has a brother that lives right. up there. And, must uh, be nice, man. Must be so nice they went to up have and all that time. Watched, uh, like, white boy funk. <laughs> it's good, man. Um, so, uh, again, this is going to be a pretty cool show, and uh, we'll be right back after this quick break. Hey, how are you doing? Uh, this is Matt Wheatley. And this is Onwar again, and we want you to come out to see us in September 
this year for the Observation Medicine Science and Solutions Conference. Are you the director of an observation unit that just started? Or have you had an observation unit that you're looking to grow? Uh, do you have billing or coding questions? Well, all that stuff's going to be answered at the conference this year. Right. We're going to be talking about the newest and latest protocols. We're going to have the leaders and the people who publish the papers there, unlike a lot of observation conferences. And we're going to be at the Doubletree downtown in Nashville, one of my pl favorite places to go. Yeah, uh, we had the conference there two years ago, and uh, it rained the first night, but uh, we still had a great time, had a great attendance. Um, so we're back there by popular demand. Right, so September 14th and 15th, 2017, Nashville, Tennessee, the Doubletree Hilton, uh, Nashville downtown, and it is put on by the Michigan College of Emergency Physicians. You can go to mset.org for more information, or you could go to obsprotocols.org and click the link there. So hopefully we see you then. All right. I assume by now most folks have heard of the two midnight rule and it's probably worth reviewing a little bit of uh, where this came up came along um, because it it is fairly new um, most folks have been practicing for five to ten years probably remember the pre two midnight rule era where decisions regarding inpatient versus outpatient services were determined often post hoc using third party products such as Millman or the Interqual manual, uh, where a usually a nursing level trained person would put the patients, the documentation that had been done on the patients, including vital signs through a filter uh, and come up with whether they thought this patient met inpatient or outpatient criteria. Right. That was definitely like one of the most private and sort of public sort of frustrations as an ER doctor is we have to worry about this manual that, you know, I never read in med school, you know, right. I never learned about it. And now we have to affect patient care because of this, this thing. So one of the things that a lot of folks wonder about is like, how do we even start with the two midnight rule? Back as promised with this new warning for everyone on Medicare. Specifically, it's about the words that appear on hospital forms. This is Brian Williams from a 2014 nightly news broadcast. Forms and small differences in the fine print that could mean thousands of dollars in payments down the line. And like with a lot of legislation, it's a grassroots kind of thing. And when I say grassroots, I mean somebody gets sued. It, it, it just didn't make sense at all. What were they going to observe? And here's what she didn't understand at first. That label, under observation, technically made her an outpatient. And that means Medicare won't pay for her rehabilitation in a nursing facility, which costs $28,000. Hospitals were on the hook financially for getting this right. If they put a patient, they would get more money by admitting a patient and getting the DRG lump sum payment from the insurance companies. Mm -hmm. uh, which was more than the payment they would get uh, with, with patients under observation services. Uh, the problem was the insurers knew that too, and so they would 
audit the hospital's use of inpatient services and find that if you know using these uh, third-party manuals if they found that you know a patient was admitted for a you know chest pain and they only stayed you know 24 or less than 48 hours sometimes that this patient really should have been in outpatient services and oh by the way you owe us the overpayment of right. that and that could be up to millions you know multi-million dollar uh, payments that 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 then the hospital would have to pay back to the government uh, and so as a result of that hospitals were putting more patients in outpatient services which then led to things like uh, you know patients being on the hook financially for skilled nursing facility benefits and um, led to the class action lawsuit in the state of Virginia against the Department of Health and Human Services. Right. And so as a result of this, I think the uh, government uh, took it upon themselves to kind of re uh, reimagine what it, what a uh, being an outpatient, being under observation services was. And this came in the uh, form of a OPPS or Outpatient Payment Prospective Services Final Rule. We wanted to talk to Medicare, but they denied our request for an interview, citing pending litigation on this very issue. Uh, this is a pretty interesting clip, and in, in my opinion, this is kind of one of the main impetuses for the whole thing. I think this is good for ED managed. This is Dr. Rebecca Parker, former president of ASEP, talking to us on a show that we recorded at the Scientific Assembly right around the time of the OPPS coming out and when these sorts of things were starting to get very prevalent in the lay press. Observation units. Um, I think that the thing that we've done very well, uh, our, you know, our folks are the experts in emergency medicine, is we've managed those patients under 24 hours. Done a very good job of throughput, protocol-based delivery of care, and getting our nurses to to uh, to take advantage of that unit. I think that this is um, this supports that type of unit. That that we need these units even more um, to be able to run those folks through efficiently. So uh, I think it can support that piece. And then as a clinician, the other day I was working before I came out to Seattle, and was working with case management on a patient that uh, um, uh, I was admitting at 9 p.m. It was clearly going to meet the two midnight rule and uh, it was very clear to me as a practicing physician I wasn't wondering about whether amid observation run the you know criteria and although the hospital hadn't quite yet set up their process yet when she came over to talk to me I was familiar with the two midnight rule and I asked her about it and she said you know yeah I mean we're, they're starting to look at what's their trend for this particular diagnosis or scenario what how, how long does that patient usually stay and make helping that to make their decision which for us as clinicians, I mean, we all, um, I uh, am frustrated by Interqual and Millman, and none of us completely understand it, including the attending physicians. So I think it is getting us back into the physician making that medical decision making. Um, uh, but we also need to support, though, that medical decision making in our documentation that to meet that criteria. Right. Uh, at the time, I think I, think I wrote an op-ed about it in 2014. Uh, and I was, you know, and I still am kind of a pro two midnight rule, uh, practitioner, mostly because, um, the thing that I find most painful and Dr. Wheatley can agree or not, uh, is, was really the, uh, interqual and Millman sort of thing that, 
that somehow would supersede my clinical gestalt and whether or not this patient could go home. Brother Osborne, how's it going? Willie Smith and I go way back. So uh, he's actually a hospitalist, an internal medicine doctor at uh, Emory University Hospital Midtown. Uh, believe it or not, Willie and I met in the year 1996. So, Dr. Smith, can you tell us if the two midnight rule made things easier for you as a hospitalist, as an internal medicine doctor? Yeah, I think it ultimately kind of made it easier for providers to try to figure it out. So, um, I, I think, um, I think, so when we were clear that the patient had traditional Medicare and when, and when we kind of thought of it of as the whole, you know, do I think I can get this patient out in under two midnight, regardless of kind of what was happening clinically, if I think they can actually be discharged in under two midnight, then it made it easier for me to kind of think, ah, if I, did, if I thought it was going to take longer, uh, it kind of made it easier to maybe think uh, inpatient. So um, whether the two midnight rule which has really been in place for two or three years now, uh, has made dispo from OBS easier or harder. And I'm going to speak from my perspective, which is an ED observation unit uh, provider, not necessarily from other perspective around observation. And certainly there is the hospitalist perspective. Uh, and and here is Dr. Chris Baugh via Skype. Uh, he is a guy that we have kind of come up with, have done a lot of conferences with him, done, done some papers, uh, heard him speak. He is a nationally renowned expert in observation medicine and uh, health services. Uh, and I think the answer, the short answer I gave you was, was yes and no. Prior to the two midnight rule, in my institution, we had a 24-hour clock that ran and this was consistent with most people's concepts of an ED observation unit in that it was a one-day or 24-hour unit. And then what we would do is, as we were approaching the witching hour of, of 24 hours, we would ask ourselves whether there's an imminent disposition for this patient. If the answer was no, we would, we would admit them, and typically to medicine, that's where most of these patients go to, and we would just explain to the hospitalist that, we tried to manage the patient in observation, and we're approaching 24 hours, and we haven't succeeded, so we're going to flip them to inpatient and admit them to your service. And we didn't get pushback, by and large, when we told that story. What happened with the two-midnight rule is it kind of changed the concept of, of what uh, you know the college try and observation is uh, from the 24-hour concept uh, to two-midnights, which could be up to 48 hours if the patient arrives at uh, 12.01 a.m., for example, and that clock starts when they come to the ED, uh, and, and it does uh, you know, start you know, relative to midnight when they arrive, which is kind of an administrator concept, not so much a clinical concept that we care about in the emergency department, but unfortunately right. that's what Medicare uh, wrote into the policy. And so now we have patients routinely going over 24 hours, I would still say that's the exception to the rule. Our, our average length of stay is still in the 15 to 18 hour range. So when someone's staying 40 plus hours, it's still an outlier. Uh, but but we're seeing more commonly these you know 30 plus hour stays that we didn't have so much previously. So now when we're calling to say we've tried OBS, we, we try for longer. Uh, 
Overall, I agree that, you know, the ABS unit hasn't changed that much in how it operates. This is Mike Ross on the phone here, and by all accounts, Mike Ross is the godfather of observation medicine. Probably once in a while, there will be discussions where we'll try to get somebody admitted and we can say that they don't meet the two-minute rule criteria, but that's really been rare. I, th I think the, the bigger impact has been on the inpatient side where the providers were using interqual and McKesson and proprietary admission criteria. Uh, and there, there, there's still, I call it uh, post-interqual stress disorder. You've heard of PTSD, this would be PISD, please don't say it. Um, but I think, I think the, my inpatient colleagues are, are still recovering from PISD um, in that they, they kind of half transitioned towards applying the two-minute rule for observation patients. So, Willie, let me ask you this. Do you think the two-midnight rule is better than interqual? Absolutely. And I think that's the other thing, too, is that, so speaking from a, from a physician's perspective, I think it made it easier in that it did kind of simplify just a little bit more uh, in that, yeah, again, going by two-midnights or not, but also, too, knowing that CMS gave the um, kind of gave the preponderance of evidence being on the physician documentation, I think, unfortunately, interqual is still around, and I think mm -hmm. hospitals and the QIOs are using it to adjudicate some of these short-stay inpatients. And mm -hmm. so my understanding is that there's the two-midnight presumption, which is if a, if a physician says, yes, I believe this patient's going to require more than two midnights of care, and then for whatever reason, they don't. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know... Obviously, outside of patients that sign out AMA, die, or get transferred, um, you know, you bring them into the hospital as a as a full admit, and they get better more quickly than you think they're going to get better. Or maybe you had intended on doing a procedure or a heart cath or something like that, and and maybe you change your mind and you end up discharging them. Those those cases are still up for audit by the QIOs. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they will determine on block how many are appropriate, inappropriate for your hospital using, using Interqual. And if they find that there's above a certain threshold, then the hospital can be at risk for, you know, further auditing, you know, more close scrutiny. You know, the, the two things that I think should have been done, well, there, there's a few things that should have been done differently. Um, one is um, there's too much wiggle room regarding the one outpatient, one inpatient uh, cases. Uh, and, and I'm seeing some of the uh, Medicare reviewers revert back to interqual in those cases, which has caused confusion among providers. It's created the perception that, is that Medicare is moving back to interqual. And I think this is not exactly related to the two-minute rule, but I, I think the time, I think that with the advent of the two-minute rule, time and observation, uh, if a patient becomes an inpatient, should be counted towards the three-day nursing home SNF rule. Well, let me ask you this. What about, do you think that because of this rule, perhaps you guys have been placing patients that are a little bit more challenging in the observation unit because of the 
the freedom and then kind of the lack thereof uh, that's kind of included in this rule? I think so. I think the big population that we did not previously even try with an observation. This is Dr. Baugh again. The kind of elderly, frail patients uh, who's, who's kind of having this decline at home. Uh, these patients typically need like, physical therapy and care coordination. They may need several other consults. Uh, and that was typically something that was unrealistic to do in a 24-hour time frame. But if you take that cap off the 24 hours and say, okay, well, we can do this in maybe 36 hours. And then we do have locally in our area in Massachusetts a lot of uh, sniff waiver eligibility. So we are increasingly placing patients straight to sniff from an observation unit stay. Uh, and it, for, for many reasons, that is oftentimes the best option uh, because it, it shortens what would have otherwise been a three or four day hospital stay that would have been you know, unnecessary to, say, a day and a half hospital stay. The patient ends up where they would have ended up anyway, and they don't have an extra out-of-pocket expense uh, because of that. So you mean that the insurance companies will waive the three-day inpatient requirement for exactly for sniff benefits and is that specific to the massachusetts care or is that uh or is the romney care or whatever they're calling it or is that uh private insurers or uh, who's doing so that's that it's largely medicare and my understanding is that there there's some demonstration projects going on around sniff waivers that medicare is trying to understand um, how how this may be used, uh, and, and I don't think it's limited to just Massachusetts. And anyone who's interested in this can talk to their their local case managers to see, uh, you know, which which payers are are waiving uh, SNF benefit. Again, Medicare is going to be the big one that you care about because that's usually the patient population we're talking about here. And uh, what I think they're nervous about, and that's understandable, is that by waiving the three day hospital stay. They'll have um, it basically be a backdoor to uh, to like a long-term care facility. Uh, this wave sniff benefit and, and and basically Medicare is not long-term care insurance, so they don't want to be in that business. They they, they want right. to be able to do acute hospitalization care and then the, the post-acute care period for a limited period of time. But they don't think that. Um, uh, but I think but I think they're worried that we're going to have this big run on you know, ED to sniff direct without any kind of acute hospitalization reason, um, that's going to increase costs significantly for Medicare, and they're already you know, very cost-conscious, so anything that could potentially drive up expense for them is of great concern. Last year, CMS devised a new rule to determine whether or not a Medicare beneficiary would be considered an inpatient or an outpatient during their hospital stay. Uh, solely based on whether their hospital stay spans more than two midnights. Okay, the clip we're going to listen to right now is Senator Menendez from the Garden State from New Jersey. Uh, this is from back in 2014. This is at a congressional hearing with then Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius. I have a bill with several members of this committee who have co-sponsored called the, the Two Midnight Rule Coordination and Improvement Act. But what's more important to me is that CMS uh, has the existing authority to implement the provisions uh, of this bill, which basically is to have CMS consult with outside experts like hospitals and physicians to develop the criteria and methodologies that ensure beneficiaries in need of a short stay inpatient care are able to receive it and to make sure we don't have those long stays when they're not necessary. Let me get you to switch gears for just a second. I know you got to go to work today. 
Uh, what did you think that we learned from this second uh, OIG report that came out in December in regards of whether or not the two midnight rule is effective for the things that it set out to do? So I think I think it's interesting that the OIG continues to look into this because I think they provide data that that's not being published elsewhere. So people who have a big interest in observation, especially on the impact on patients and the patient out-of-pocket expense, should look at these now two OIG reports that have gone out in the last couple of years. Um, I think the most recent one uh, looks at trends post to midnight rule. And they looked at basically the first year you know, since the new rule has been released. So it's, it's nice for them to be able to contrast a bit of a before and after to see what the impact was. One of the big limitations of this more recent study was that um, in the first year of the two midnight rule, it was very explicit that it was not going to be uh, basically enforced. Like it was in play, but, they, but the hospitals were protected from any audits based on their compliance with the two midnight rule. So I think we probably saw a bit of an attenuated effect of the two midnight rule. Mm-hmm. So I would I would hope that the OIG would continue to find uh, this topic interesting and and publish an update on on uh, on the, the effect of the two midnight rule with more even more recent data with 2015 2016 data to see if there's a, a trend. Mm-hmm. And I think what they were they were looking for is to say, uh, are there fewer of these really long observation stays? I mean, that, to me, that was one of the big goals of, of mm-hmm. Medicare by putting out the two midnight rule because. When you looked at the lay press and these examples of kind of observation care gone wrong, uh, typically it was an elderly patient with uh, maybe a new fracture or a very painful uh, condition that limited their ability to care for themselves. And they basically had this endless hospitalization that was characterized as observation status. For example, like, uh, you know, bilateral wrist fractures in an 80 year old, you know, they would spend 10 days in the hospital and then they would go to a sniff. And because you know bilateral arm fractures wasn't uh, interqual inpatient, the hospital didn't want to bill for inpatient and get denied, so they classified the whole hospital visit as observation. None of uh, their hospital overnights counted towards the SNF benefit. They spent mm-hmm. you know three weeks in the SNF after that hospitalization, and then because they were for those ten days in the hospital, they were in an you know inpatient floor, you know maybe sharing a room with an inpatient, being rounded on by an inpatient team. From the patient's perspective, they were admitted to the hospital, and so the fact that they're being told that they're an outpatient that whole time is a huge surprise, understandably so, to that patient. So I think what TMS wanted to do was pull back on those examples in particular and say, hey, if you need hospital-level care for more than two midnights, that's inpatient. So under the two-midnight rule, that example I gave would have been classified as inpatient. And then none of this would have come back to the patient financially, uh, uh, as I described. Um, right. So I think I think that's one big piece. The other the other side of the coin is that uh, CMS was was suspecting that some hospitals would have a very brief hospitalization, say an 18-hour hospitalization, and the hospital will be billing it out as inpatient. Uh, so uh, you took a glance at the uh, the more recent OIG report. What's your kind of take on it? What's your takeaway? Um, I, I mean, I think the takeaway is that uh, we've, or not we, but the needle has moved a little bit, I guess, in terms of getting more of a right fit between uh, 
reducing the long outs long outpatient stay patients and the short stay in patients we're, we're not quite there yet uh -huh. um you know it's important to realize and chris bob mentioned it to us it's important to realize that the oig's job is not necessarily you know they're not doing research they're not making right. recommendations they are specifically tasked to investigate other branches of government for fraud and abuse and so you know we would like there to be some big sweeping recommendations from them and that, that we can kind of take to legislative bodies or to our hospital or to you know use at the bedside when making decisions with patients but that's i think not what the oig is that's not what their intentions are so yeah. the only thing you can say is that there's going to continue to be change on this and you know i think specifically for healthcare and without trying to you know overly politicize this mm -hmm. there, there's going to be some changes there's going to continue to be change in how much the government pays for health care mm -hmm. and what they will pay for uh and uh so i think that is going to that is going to alter how the game is played in terms of outpatient inpatient services um and you know something dr bob brought up was alternate dispositions to admission so you know things like hospital at home i think that those kind of programs are going to be more important going forward so it's interesting if you look at the history of, of medicare observation policy it's been a very dynamic thing over the years i mean if you were to show slides of you know the major policy changes over the past 20 years it would take you you know five or six slides to get through everything at, at a pretty small font uh so I, I don't think that's really going to change. I think there's going to continue to be like every year or two a Medicare update to observation policy. I think from a big picture perspective, they're not going to make observation go away. No. So I think for some people who are hoping that Medicare is just going to completely right. remove it as as a class or an ops or a or a disposition, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you that it's it's around to stay. I think the I think opposite's going to happen. I think tuning and closing some of these gaps or loopholes that currently exist in the policy. Yeah, sorry, I, I was gonna say, I think the opposite's gonna happen. I think you're gonna see expansion of observation services and outpatient hospital services as we've already seen. I mean, I think, I think they realize it is a cost savings measure for them to not have to pay hospitals, you know, what was traditionally uh, inpatient care. Um, if they can classify more low acuity care as outpatient or observation services that they are incentivized to do so. You know, as we see pushing more services, as hospitals become more crowded and, and more hospitals go out of business, uh, we're going to, the, the hospital bed is becoming the, the prized thing. It's becoming right. the rate limiting resource. Right. Um, so we're going to need to get more creative in, in how we manage acute conditions. That's true. And um, more and more, we're seeing these acute conditions managed in OBS. So like we usually say at the end of the show. You don't have OBS. <laughs> you got problems, man. Right. Okay. Check us out on uh, the Gmail, the observation at gmail.com. And you can tweet at us, uh, at observation. And um, we will catch you very shortly. That's right. All right, Prince. Yeah,
Pobscast is produced by Doctors Matthew Wheatley and Anwar Osborne. It's hosted by Doctors Matthew Wheatley and Anwar Osborne. We'd like to thank all of our special guests today, including Dr. Willie Smith from Emory University Hospital Midtown, Dr. Chris Baugh from Brigham and Women's in Boston, Dr. Michael Ross, the godfather of OBS, and even though she was on the show a while ago, Dr. Rebecca Parker. Again, thanks for listening, and feel free to drop a review of us on iTunes or TuneIn and any other place that you might want to listen to a podcast. So, we'll see you soon. Thanks again.